This episode was produced in cooperation with the ETH Entrepreneur Club, a student organization which aims to inspire, educate, and empower the next generation of entrepreneurs. The ETH Entrepreneur Club holds more than 40 events every year, resulting in an impressive alumni list of successful startups. If you want to keep up with their busy agenda, make sure to give them a follow on social media. The opportunity should be big enough that you don't need a calculator. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and hands-on learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Casper, a very warm welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Glad to be here, Sylvan. You are the co-founder of On, the fastest growing sports company in the world, often cited by the media. And you're a Swiss-based company that sells running shoes, but now also lifestyle shoes, basically, and also apparel, and was founded with the mission to make running fun again. We're going to talk about your journey, and I would like to start with your personal background. You studied at the University of St. Gallen in Switzerland, and despite the, the content there, the studies, you always worked besides studying there, and I think that was a crucial moment for you. Can you talk a bit more about how that actually shaped you and what happened there? Yeah, I mean, I didn't have a choice. I had to uh, pay for my studies myself. So, and, uh, in fact, at the time, uh, quite a lot of students um, uh, had jobs. Uh, and uh, We were actually all proud that we didn't burn just just students, but it was in, in the old system, of course. Um, one of the uh, I had between uh, my maturitet and uh, the university, I had worked as a journalist and. And I continued that, and I realized that uh, actually, if I do something that uh, I enjoy, I you know it pays a lot better. Um, and uh, and and so you know I worked in the, in the as a journalist, I moved into PR, did some consulting on the side, mostly connected to sports. Um, and that's uh, um, you know that, that's also where I met Olivier, my my partner um, in on. Can you talk a bit how that meeting happened? Like, what was the the circumstances that you met uh, Olivier? Yeah, so I was at the time, I was uh, head of media relations for Ironman in uh, Ironman Switzerland here in Zurich. And uh, uh, Olivier would always win the race. I think he won it six times or so. So um, I remember one day after the finish, he basically came up to me. He's like, look, hey, you know, I know you're doing all the media stuff. Can't you do my media uh, relation as well? Um, and I said, sure, you know, we'll start. And, and, and uh, you know, because I was studying St. Colin, he lived near St. Colin. It was actually very convenient and and about them. two months later, he asked me to become his agent, which was a little bit, uh, well, a surprise. Uh, I was uh, 21 at the time. I was like, hey, I have no experience. Uh, I'm not sure I can do this. But he's like, yeah, you know, but you, you have your economics background. You should be able to do it. And I remember um, uh, we, we sat down uh, um, at my then girlfriend's place uh, near on the lake, of some, uh, lake, lake Constance. And uh, we were so excited. We both had a glass of wine to celebrate the occasion, but we were both athletes at the time. And after a glass of wine, we were both drunk. So uh, it was a pretty uh, funny moment. I don't quite remember what we what we discussed, but um, we had a very cool relationship. Um, I did that for about three years, and and he became uh, world champion twice. He had he had the best years of his career, and I was I was able to be part of that. And we traveled the world together. 
And now, um, you know, almost 20 years later, um, we're, we're traveling the world, uh, world together still, or again, and we're often having a good laugh about the, the good old days. So that was basically the foundation of your uh, co-founder relationship. Your other co-founder, David, you met him at your consulting time at McKinsey. Can you talk more a bit how that happened and why you decided then to also, you know, join the same route together and work together in the future? Yeah, David and I, we met that in 2001 at McKinsey and uh, we actually did a project together. Um, and uh, yeah, we just, we just got along very, very well. And about, uh, I don't know, 18, to 18 months or so in, into my job at McKinsey, I decided to get a PhD, which a lot of, a lot of uh, consultants do. Um, and I went back to university and that, and when, while I was at the university again, um, writing my PhD, uh, David left McKinsey to, to go and work for Young Drubicum, um, uh, uh, branding and advertising agency. So he asked me uh, to, to help him out. He's like, yeah, you're a student now again. You have time. Can't you come in one day a week? Um, it was a little bit of a turnaround case and, and it turned out that I, I came in more like two or three days a week. And, uh, uh, and then I realized, hey, this is actually a lot more fun than, than consulting. And uh, I never went back to McKinsey and then joined uh, Young Rubicum and David and I worked there together maybe two to three years. Before he left, uh, I took over his, his role as a managing partner. And um, when on then, uh, you know, became, became a topic, uh, maybe we, we go into that in a minute. Um, Basically, I felt this is such a big challenge. We need the best possible team. And, um, and the three of us, uh, we're very diverse in our interests and skills. And we felt that that, that would be a good start. Awesome. We, we talk about that story in a, in a minute. What I want to talk about first is also your entrepreneurial motivation. Your dad was also an entrepreneur himself. And you always wanted to become an entrepreneur, but you chose to go to McKinsey. And then you also worked for another company. So... Where did that desire to to be an entrepreneur, to have your own company, come from? Yeah, it was definitely running in the family. My my grandfather was an entrepreneur, and and, and my dad, um, and that that spirit probably was was just something that uh, that that uh, always had. A, and also, I just don't like it if people tell me what to do. <laughs> so you know, I wanted to be independent. Um, at the same time. McKinsey was a was a very good start into into the uh, you know work work life. I mean, obviously, I, I was basically an entrepreneur during my studies. When you know, I, I was never employed. I was uh, was a freelancer. But uh, McKinsey just just was a great learning experience. Um, but it was also something I I like to do stuff myself, and I like to move things. And as a consultant, you're always just giving people advice, but you never take responsibility, and you never really change things. Or hardly ever, um, and 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 so in advertising, I was able to do that. Um, but there was always this burning desire to have our own baby. Um, we just didn't have an idea, or I just didn't have an idea that I thought was was good enough. Um, and you you need an idea to <laughs> to to start a business. And I think then Olivier came with an idea, right? That he pitched to you. Yeah, and actually, Olivier. Yeah, one day called me and he they told me, hey, I, I co-invented this running shoe and I need help in marketing. And I told him right there on the phone that it was a very stupid idea <laughs> that uh, he didn't stand a chance against the big brands like an Asics or an Nike or Adidas. 
um, and he should not waste his time nor mine. And absolutely not would I ever help him. <laughs> and he, he insisted, and uh, I remember we met not, not too far from here in Zurich West, um, um, and he brought the prototype. And when I saw it, I was like, very much intrigued. I was like, wow, here's the technology that you can see, and he asked me to put it on. And I remember very vividly how I walked around the conference table, and I had never walked like this before. And I was like, wow, this is, you can not only see it, but you can also feel it. And, you know, for a lot of people in marketing, you're always looking for a point of differentiation, right. a, a unique selling proposition, a unique communications proposition. And basically, we were at the time uh, doing some work for telecoms company. And basically, our point of differentiation was, hey, you know, if you send 100 SMS text messages, um, you, you, you get a free uh, movie theater entry. That's the level of, you know, where we work. And here you had a consumer product that was completely different. Um, so that definitely uh, got me intrigued. But then still now you see the new technology, the, the better product, but you would still take it up with the big players if you decided to go down that path. So what made you to take the leap and to, to actually say, yes, let's do that. Let's give it a shot. And let's, let's go for it. Yeah, first of all, we were pretty timid, so it took us from that moment until we actually went out on the market within almost two years. Um, we just we just want to be sure that the the, the excitement and uh, the benefits that that we we, we got from the product um, was actually shared by other people. So we we did go to events, for example, we went to Ironman Switzerland, um, and we had a booth there, and we had about two hundred people test run in the shoes. And the response was overwhelming. People came back like with you know, wide open eyes and like, hey, these are so great. And I remember one uh, German lady actually came back from her test run. He was like, this feels like, this feels like, like running on clouds. Um, and that's actually where then, uh, you know, cloud tech and then our claim and everything came from. So that, that wasn't invented by us, but I was actually someone that, that tested the shoes. So. So yeah, we were definitely very convinced of, of that, you know, that, that, that technology was superb and it was superior. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, we also knew that the space, the running space was just gigantic. It's a very, very large market. Um, and, uh, I once heard a quote by someone, uh, basically said, look, the opportunity should be big enough that you don't need a calculator to, <laughs> to, to quantify it. Right. Yeah. And, and this is actually, True for the running market. So something like 20 billion just in, in US dollars, just, uh, for running shoes. Um, you know, we don't need it. You, you don't need a calculator. If you just get 1%, um, you're fine. You're good. Um, and, and so we actually never did any market research or we never uh, looked at, at, at market sizes. Um, we never wrote the business plan in that sense. All we had was a budget and that's how we started. And what's really striking here is you, you basically tested, like, as we know it from software companies, you had like your own MVP with the people testing the 200 runners testing your shoe and you got positive feedback. So what happened after that? How did you then uh, make the next step of saying, Hey, the feedback is good. The market is large enough. What happened afterwards? Yeah. So first of all, it's a big difference to have a product to being a brand. Uh, and, and, and David and I, we come from, from the branding world and we understand that very well. So basically we, we wanted to have, um, we wanted to create a brand. So obviously you need a name, 
you need a, a design a logo. Um, and, and for us, it was very important that we, we tap into the potential of, of Swiss design, which is very reductionist. And we, we then uh, brought the, on board uh, a designer, actually. Uh, we had a competition between different designers. Um, and the person that at the end won that competition was a very close friend that we almost didn't in, in, include into the competition because we didn't want to endanger our friendship. So Thilo Brunner um, has uh, been on board uh, for more than 12 years now. And, and um, yeah, he's, uh, he's one of the, the, the key people that made on into, into what it is with his team of now, I don't know, 20, 30 people. Mm-hmm. Um so, so that was one step. But then the other, other step, we had never manufactured anything. So we had to find a factory. And uh, we, you know, we originally started looking in, in Korea and we went, then went to China. And, and basically we, we asked people that knew somebody that knew somebody. And, and, uh, you know, we visited a couple of factories. And at the time, nobody was very interested in, 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 in bringing on a brand that would maybe do 10,000 pairs a year. Um, and they were like, yeah, you know, all the brands tell us that, you know, they're going to be millions of pairs, but, uh, you know, nobody ever makes it. And, but hey, um, uh, we, we found, we found someone and we started and that's how it, it took off. What's also a, a big question here is about the timing. Um, some people say there's no right timing. Other people say the timing is crucial for the success of your startup. So why was the right timing to, to then really, you know, start and found on back in 2010? Like, what was the right timing? Were there any thoughts or discussions about that? Not really. You just went with the... <laughs> Not really. I mean, look, from a personal point of view, both, oh, actually all three of us, David, Oli and myself, we all had just bought a house and we had uh, huge mortgages on it. Um, uh, David and I, we were, we were leaving very highly paid uh, executive roles um for basically nothing at on so from that point of view the timing definitely wasn't right um uh i think 2008 was a financial crisis so you know from that point of view maybe not the right time either um actually what we came onto the market with a highly cushioned injury prevention uh, product just when everybody was talking about barefoot running and you don't need shoes at all so the timing wasn't right from that perspective either. Um, but somehow uh, we prevailed. <laughs> also, what, what led you to that decision, you know, to leave the, the well-paid corporate job and not like do it on the side and test some things first, but then actually take the jump and focus on it full time. Yeah. That was also your risk that you took for you and also your families basically, right? Yes, but that's something that I would recommend everybody not to do it part time or not do it in the evenings or on the weekends. We were like, okay, we don't want to fail because of a lack of effort. We want to give it our best and then maybe it doesn't work out. But we, you know, we don't want to say, Hey, well, if we had had more time. Um, and at the same time, of course, because we did have these high paid jobs and we had other offers, we wanted to make sure that everybody focuses actually in our shareholder agreement. The first shareholder agreement that we just made between the three of us. Mm-hmm. Um, it's clearly stated that we have to devote 100% of our time. Only had to do 80% because at the time we still had a coaching business. Um, and we could not take any outside offers. We could not take any outside money. Um, and if somebody had done that or had left the company early, say after a year or so, we would have lost all our shares. 
So we really want to say, okay, all in. Let's 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 try for two years. If we fail, we fail. And we always joked, you know, if we fail, we go back to work. Sure. So basically, from that perspective, you couldn't really lose too much if you put it that way. This this is so you know we're talking two thousand and eight when when we were having these discussions. Um, it wasn't like being an entrepreneur was the cool thing back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cool thing was to go and join UBS, um, pri- um, uh, investment banking, or be a, being a consultant. Um, so the the notion of starting a business, leaving a well-paid job, leaving a career was difficult. And, and there was some social stigma around. And I remember um, telling business um, friends or even at dinner parties, hey, you know, we're, we're starting a company. We're going we're gonna to make running shoes. I remember people just, their eyes going blank and just basically, it's almost like they canceled me from their, from their Rolodex, you know, from their from their contact list, like this person is no longer useful to me. And these people, I, then for three years, never I never heard from them. And they're the ones that then, you know, then they're reaching out, like, hey, do you want to have lunch? It's not like I, I have time for lunch in Zurich anymore these days, you know, because I'm usually traveling around the world. But, you know, the same people that, you know, you basically cancel you then came back three years later because they, oh, I was wrong, right? Um, uh, of course, now our interests have have moved on, um, but that that was definitely a, a fear of 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 kind of like dropping out of of the business world. And how did you deal with that? I can imagine that this is also quite some psychological pressure that you face in that moment, and it's not so easy to go through and and really you know live with it to a certain degree while still working on your venture. It was actually very. Uh, very cleansing and very refreshing because it, it basically you go back back to basics. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a time I would say uh, around 2013, June 2013, when my balance on my bank account was the same as when I left university. It was it was zero, and I, I've never felt freer. Why? In what way? It's just, you know, uh, how, how, how does the song go by, um, by Joplin? Um, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose, right? That, that's, that's, that's what it is. And, you know, if anybody thinks they can be an entrepreneur but not go into a zone where it really hurts, it's just not going to happen. Well, I think these stories, you know, it's, it's always interesting and fascinating to see that to every success story, there are also stories where there were really tough times. And I think that's important to, to show to people, hey, there are always two sides of the, of the story. Yeah. But yeah, consider this now. Obviously, uh, things are very, very good now. Um, they might change at some point again. But when are you really able to take risks? You know, if, you're, if you're holding on to something, then, then you cannot take risks. And so obviously, when you start, you want to be able to take enormous risks. Um, but that's something that if you want to be successful and evolve a company um, and not just, you know, continuously evolve, but also can make step changes, you you want to be able to take risks. So actually one of the tools that um, uh, successful um, investors have is that they give founders personal wealth so that they can, they're free to take risk again. Because the worst thing is that you build something and maybe it's worth 10 million. 
uh, and you own 10, 20% of that. So, you know, you're by any standard, you're rich, but you're so afraid that you're going to lose that because it's all tied in company that you're no, no longer being innovative. True. As an investor, you know, they take 20 uh, bets and they want one that goes to a billion. And for that, you need to take risks. So to align interest, give founders liquidity so they have no, you know, they pay off the mortgage or whatever they need um, so they can take risks again. I think that's a very refreshing perspective. Do you think that this happens enough in the Swiss startup ecosystem? No, not at all. You know, Swiss, Swiss investors are, yeah, not very experienced. Um, and and they're, in, in general, not all of them, but many of them are, uh, you know, the, 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 the trees don't grow into the sky. Um, you know, let's stay humble. Let's stay modest. Um, you know, they read somewhere 20 years ago, skin in the game, right? Um, you know, so you want to keep them small. Um, it's a very different mindset in, in, in the U.S. and in China as well. We're also going to talk about that mindset uh, later in that episode, because I think that's a crucial part of how you are set up and run your company. Let's go back to the product launch. So we, we talked about the early days now, also from the psychological perspective about the, the difficulties also of starting your own company back in 2008, 2010. So I also am a bit more curious to learn more about how you actually bring a product into the market. So you found the, the producing company. What happened then? How did you build trust with them that you're actually a partner that they should work with and that there's also a growing business coming up? Yeah, so, you know, that... On the manufacturer side, it's pretty easy. You just pay everything up front. Um, uh, so, you know, there wasn't a lot of trust. Um, but that, that's, that's just, uh, that's just how, how they operate. Um, in the beginning, it's very transactional, but we did actually stay with that partner for a while. And, and, and now the current partner, obviously, uh, he's now one of many, but we've, we've been with them for about eight or nine years. Um, so, I mean, the, you know, making a product is one thing. But actually bringing it to market and selling it is a very different thing. And, and uh, that's where a lot of, 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 of really good ideas die because it's a technology, an innovation. At best, it's an it's a, it's a early prototype, but it's not a market-ready product, nor is there a sales and marketing organization. And, um, we, we basically did two things. Um, first, we got very, very lucky that... Um, at the dinner party, I met someone that uh, worked for ISPO. ISPO is the world's largest sporting goods fair held in Munich, Beijing, and um, uh, somewhere in, 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 in America. Um, they give out every year an award for the most innovative new brand called ISPO Brand New Award. And he invited me to participate. I had heard of ISPO, but I had no idea. I had never been... Um, and so, yeah, we, you know, we, we, we put down, uh, we put together a video and we, one of our early prototypes we, we sent to the jury. And sure enough, um, December 20, 2009, I get a phone call. You guys won. And we're like, oh, wow, that's really cool. You know, and then, you know, basically what you win is you win a booth at the fair. I didn't think, uh, you know, much of it. And I went on, on Christmas vacation, I went skiing. And when I got back, I had a couple hundred emails because they had sent out their press release. And we had, I think, 200, 300 emails from potential distributor partners, retailers, consumers from every continent. Wow. 
What we hadn't known is that Ispobrenovar is so well known that a lot of people follow it. So brands before us that have wanted it are GoPro, for example, or, or Nixon, um, uh, Crocs. Um, so brands that actually then went to being billion dollar companies went, uh, they went public and so on. So, you know, we're maybe a little naive. Um, so I remember us then, uh, dry, you know, preparing for the show and we, we, we drove there and uh, we walked into these halls and in Switzerland, there's not even uh, a compound that big. Um, and we walked in there and every hall had huge posters, hundreds of on posters. And, and, you know, I'm 192, but I felt like tiny and I would have loved to just turn back and go out. So, um, we didn't have pricing. We didn't have, um, we didn't know, uh, you know, how we would sell them, where we would sell them. Um, we hadn't even fully signed up our manufacturing and there we were and everybody wanted these shoes. And we left the show with about a half, half a million uh, Swiss francs in orders. Wow. So that was one thing. The other thing was that. Um, while the runners really liked the product, retailers were like, no, 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 this is not a running shoe. We know what a good running shoe looks like. At the time, everybody was using the same technologies, double density EVA, basically with, you know, poster shoes that change uh, the way you run, um, always like inserts. Um, and the good running shops, they, they wouldn't even want to meet with us. So, you know, we would send them prototypes and they would be like, we called them like a week later. They haven't even, hadn't even unpacked them, hadn't even tried them. So we changed it and we said, okay, we're not going to talk about the shoes um, and we're not going to send out shoes. We're only going to go running with people. So Olivia and I um, basically traveled uh, around the globe going running with, with running store owners. And I would say 90% of the people that we ran with then placed an order and that's, that's how the brand grew. So they had to to use and, and feel the product to to fully get the yeah. the whole advantage behind it. Hey, and look, I don't blame them. I was the same. Like I told Olivia, hey, forget it. Don't even don't even show up. Um, and and you know, it's it's sometimes I miss these early days where where we would get this like pushback. Like we would like I remember I traveled uh, for one particular uh, retail retailer. I I flew to Boston three times before he would even meet me. I flew there just to meet that person and he was in the building and he didn't show up to the meeting. Wow. Um, and, and, you know, that rejection kind of, you know, we, that, that gave us a lot of energy. But what, what kept you going there? Was it like a challenge, you know, that is a bit also linked to your sports background where you say, Hey, this is a challenge that I like want to, want to go after and want to solve. And, and maybe also like win the game to a certain degree or what motivated you to, to fight this huge rejection that you faced? For sure. I mean, you know, everybody needs a little bit of thorn in their side, you know, to, to keep them sharp. Um, and, 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 you know, not just on, on the retail side, in other areas. So everybody has like these, these challenges and you make it your personal challenge and it becomes a game. And, and, um, it's not about being right in the end, you know, if, you know, it's a partnership. If, if you know, we had the same in, in, in Switzerland. I mean, uh, you know, Marcus Riffle didn't give us an appointment for in the first four years. Um, and, and, uh, and now they're our biggest account in Switzerland. Um, so yeah, that, that definitely, but beyond, uh, besides that, we did get a lot of interest. We did get a lot of positive feedback and we always had a lot of consumer demand. So, I wouldn't say we were always just going against, you know, resistance, but we also had a lot of, uh, a lot of tailwind. 
and also a very good product. I mean, that's probably also important, right? Yeah. I mean, the, you know, some people, I think on in the beginning was like a love or hate product. Like, you know, we would get 30, 40 people like being absolute fans and best, similar to an iPhone, you know, like where there were moments where somebody would walk into a running store on a Saturday, see someone else being helped into a pair of phones and just walk over and say, don't even listen to this salesperson. You have to buy these shoes. <laughs> there were so many moments like that. Um, um, so, so for sure. But then also some people just outright hated the product. Um, and, and for many people, the product didn't deliver the quality that it was supposed to, you know, so like, you know, elements would break and they would squeak. Um, the operas would come apart. I mean, there were many things that weren't right, but we had enough hardcore fans that, you know, we were able to stay afloat and keep going and get the product to, to, to where it is now. And, you know, if I now look at the uh, shoe from 2009, 2010, I'm like, really? That's how we started. That's what got people interested. That, that's the foundation. Uh, it's, it's hard to believe. It's only 10 years, 11 years now. Yeah. What comes to mind there is, I think there's a concept called 100 true fans. I'm not sure if it's like attributed to Seth Godin or anyone of that sort. But he says like, you need to recruit your first 100 true fans. And this sounds like very much that you did that to then scale beyond that. Because if you have 100 true fans that really love your product, they will share it with word of mouth and you can grow from there. I don't think we ever looked at it th this way, but we, we were very aware of how in the performance space, how opinions are formed. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we definitely learned from, from other industry. For example, I'm a very uh, um, passionate snowboarder and, and, and surfer. And I, I've, I've basically just learned how brands, how brands are built in, 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 in these core stores. Or maybe if you look at, at uh, how the full suspension mountain bike came about, you know, uh, when, when the first suspensions came out, Everybody dismissed to say, well, you, you, you're losing energy. Nobody's ever going to go fast in this. And, um, uh, you know, you, the, the person that actually put full suspension mountain bikes on the map for racing was Thomas Frischknecht. We you know that designed, co-designed the brand, a, a bike was caught and then became world champion in it, on it. Um, and, and I was aware of these mechanisms and, and, and we tried to get good runners into the shoes and good retailers. Um, and, and basically then the opinion leaders, they would spread the message and it would trickle down. And so we spent a lot of time in the early years, I would say the first three, four years with them because it has that trickle down effect. And pretty much everybody that now runs in a pair of on, you could probably trace that back to one of the runs that Olivia and I did back in the day. So you really understood the market and invested the time to, to get that right. If you're enjoying this episode of Swisspreneur, please don't forget to rate our show on Apple Podcasts. It helps us do bigger and better things, and to do them all for free. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Let's also look at your internal organization, you know, building a company and, and launching a product from scratch. Then you also grow as a company. So how do you organize yourself internally as a company? What's important there to have a well-running and well-functioning company? We always wanted to build it so it was scalable. Um, and in the beginning, it's, it's, it, it comes down to very difficult decisions. How much do you invest in the now and how much do you invest in the future? And for example, we introduced uh, an ERP early on. And at the time, that was a big investment 
um, when we didn't know whether we would ever have the volumes that would justify it. Um, now, you know, then at the time that was Salesforce, um, you know, about a year ago, we reached actually the limit of what Salesforce can handle. The system can no longer handle our volumes. You know, when you do an Excel sheet and you, you reach the limit of, right. of, uh, of lines that it, it, it can do, um, you know, it's a pretty good, cool feeling. And, you know, you, you broke, you broke Salesforce. Um, because you're just too big now. I'm sure there are um, not many people or companies that can say that. Well, <laughs> you know, Salesforce will probably say, well, you guys should have set it up differently. But, sure. um, you know, so we're now at, at a stage where, you know, we had to consider, do we go to SAP or, you know, we're actually going with Microsoft Dynamics. But, you know, that's uh, for us going to hopefully, that's us hopefully going to enable us to to scale again, uh, you know, the, towards the future. But one of the things that that we said early on is like, if we do something twice, let's automate it. So that was the mindset. So we never, we never started working with Excels to, to, to track things. So we always build systems and we do it to this day. And, um, yeah, we didn't expect this to, to scale this much. So to give you an idea, pretty much since the start, I mean, the compound annual growth rate was 85% over the first 10 years. So it's pretty much like, uh, you know, in that, um, in that tale when, Somebody asks for, you know, a grain of rice on a chessboard to be doubled. And the, the king laughs at the, at the beggar. And, and then, you know, when, you know, he realizes it's more than the world's production of rice. We're, we're, we're basically going through that right now. And, and, and the way it scales, we could never do it without, with automation. On the other hand, you also face challenges in doing things that you weren't really experienced to do before. So there was also like challenges where you probably had to ask for, for help from, from the outside, from other people. How do you go about that? Yeah. So this is something that I learned at McKinsey, that if you do something for the first time, you ask someone who has done it before. That's the standard thing. That's the first thing you do versus as a student, you're afraid to even ask a question, right? Yeah. So with this experience and this mindset, basically we, whenever we, we need to do something, we ask someone. And we're very grateful for all the, the good advice and help we got. And, and we're, we're trying to pass that on. Um, we get asked a lot, so it's sometimes hard to find the time. But whenever we can, we try to, 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 to let people share into, into our experiences. Not that that's the perfect way to do it, but um, you know, maybe avoid some mistakes or have at least a starting point or one option on the table. You can always put more options. So I think that's a good takeaway. Really encourage people to go out and ask for help if you do something for the first time or don't know where to continue. What's also, uh, you know, interesting is your organizational setup. You don't have an official CEO title. You are, I think, five equal partners that are part of the management team. Why did you decide to, to go for that setup and not really have like a, a CEO and really focus on these flat hierarchies? In the early years, I mean, it's just, there's just a lot of stuff that needs to, needs to get done, you know, and, and, you know, when maybe as a business student, you know, you, you, you look at these corporates and you have the chairman and the CEO and, you know, they're in the media and it sounds like, you know, they're, 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 they're deciding everything, right? Um, that's definitely not the reality of a startup. It's I mean, literally you just have to get shit done uh, and a lot of it. And, um, and, and there's very little bossing and very much doing. Um, the three of us, we realized very quickly that we were always the bottleneck. Even, you know, it's a, it's a, 
unique situation that you have three people um, as partners. Um, but still, we realized we need more capacity or more bandwidth. And what we did then, and this was uh, late 2012, we realized we needed to bring more good people on board. And we took a very crucial decision. and could have gone either way, but we decided not to build below us, but next to us. So we brought in a CFO and a COO as equal partners. And, and that probably set us on, on, on this journey. And maybe in the, in the early years, you know, some of us would have liked to have like a CEO title and, and be more important. Um, but with the setup that we now have is that, you know, for, um, a manufacturing partner, if our COO travels to Asia to meet with them, he is the top ranking person at on. So they bring out the red carpet and, you know, the, the, you know, the, the owner comes. Um, when I go and meet with an important retailer, um, say Nordstrom's in the U.S., because I show up, uh, their owner family, uh, or at least the CEO comes to the table as well. Um, so, you know, we just have a lot of, we have a lot of important people versus you have one important person that is always stretched. Then also, you know, the decision making, there's a lot of decisions being taken on every day, not just amongst the five of us, but we try, you know, this is a very Swiss uh, principle that I don't think Swiss companies necessarily live very well, but in, in the way we organize our democracy, we have subsidiarity. So we push decisions to the lowest level because these people will know what really works for them and, and they know how much investment is justified versus someone doing in century like in, in, in France. Mm-hmm. So that's a principle. So you could start with us as an intern um, and the next day you take decisions. Um, and, and, and that is something that, that is, is, is still true to this day. So decision making is, is very, is very, um, is very broadly distributed. And we don't, we don't see now that it has worked so well why we would have, why we would even want to have a CEO. It sounds like it gives you a lot of uh, good advantages. So it does make sense to change. Talk about the culture. What role does, do, do your Swiss roots play? I mean, you're now active in a very international way. But you still seem to have this, this Swiss image, these Swiss roots. So in what way do you combine the, the Swissness with the hunger for in, international, internationalization or growth, basically? Yeah. So the, the internationalization had to happen because running shoes is something that you need scale for just, just to be relevant for you manufacturers. So the Swiss market alone wouldn't, wouldn't be big enough for us to, 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 I mean, yeah. Maybe, uh, you know, at the market share that we have now in Switzerland, we, we could be just a Swiss brand, but it, it was not enough to start. So that was actually a blessing. We started in five countries on day one. So we always joked we're, 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 we're the smallest uh, international corporation. Um, and, you know, we had all the complexity early on, but it also um, helped us to de- develop a blueprint for internal, internet, internationalization. So of our volume, about 95% is now outside of Switzerland and the largest markets are the US, Germany, Japan, and we, we hope that uh, China will be in, in, in the top three very soon as well. So, um, yeah, so we are a very international brand and we have to learn, we had to learn very quickly how these markets work and, and all of them work very differently. Germany and the US have very little in common in terms of how business is done there. I think the Swiss, the Swiss mentality and, and, and Switzerland having four cultures helped us a lot 
um, being more sensitive to cultural differences, not coming and saying, hey, this is the Japanese way of doing business or the, or the US way of doing business, which a lot of US companies do or Japanese as well. And that's why they sometimes fail in, in certain environments. Um, and we were, we were uh, adapting to, to the local business culture. Um, at the same time, the Swiss values in terms of a certain conservatism, uh, you know, frugality when it comes to finances, um, a, a passion for quality, precision, innovation. These are things that, that resonate extremely well in other cultures. Um, and that, that, that are important in, in how, how we, we, we operate as, as a business. So, um, imagine now 2010 to 2020, it was a time when, when many startups felt like they never had to even make money. Yeah. Scale um, and grow at all costs. Right? Exactly. Um, many of these companies don't today, uh, you look at WeWork or Uber, don't have unique economics that make sense. It doesn't make sense to charge 20 bucks for a cab ride and, and pay a driver 25. Yeah. But these companies are multi-billion dollar companies and they are public. We took a very different route. We said we're only entrepreneurs, we're only business people if we make money. So that was a very important goal and, and we broke even in 2014 and we've growing profitability ever since. That's a very unsexy way of doing business, you know, from a, from a, an American or Chinese uh, perspective. Um, but we stuck to it and now we're super, super happy because sure enough, 2018 came and, and the business environment changed. And if you're not profitable today as a company, you're in big trouble. Um, so, you know, we, we also felt being profitable was a way to, to, to control our dynasty. And, um, so yeah, you know, we're happy we did this this way. If you read um, the media in Switzerland, we're often being criticized as being so ambitious and overambitious and, and maybe not modest enough. And, you know, these guys dream big. And um, there was an article in Tagesanzeige just three weeks ago, and the opening line was basically a joke about, yeah, nobody ever, uh, you know, uh, accused on of, of like uh, being too modest or not being ambitious enough, right? Changing perspectives, if we talk to the New York Times, or, you know, if we talk to business partners in China, um, they're accusing us of, of being too conservative, typical Swiss, right? So I think having both sides, dreaming big and, and being inspired by what's possible, that's, that also comes from us, all five of us uh, on the executive team, but also the wider group. We probably, between us, do six to 12 overseas trip each every year. So, you know, I, I spend uh, a lot more time in Tokyo and New York than in Bern or Geneva or St. Gallen. In fact, about 50 times or 100 times as much in the last 10 years. I think I've been to Bern once, um, but I've been in Tokyo at least 20 times. And I've been in New York over 100 times. So obviously that shapes you. So I'm not thinking from a perspective of even Zurich. Um, if you go into the subway, um, in London or in the subway of Tokyo, there's a lot of, a lot of sneakers. And you just look and you're like, Hey, I see a lot of swooshes. I see very little ons. So maybe, you know, a tenfold increase wouldn't be so crazy. Mm -hmm. And, and so, you know, we're allowed to dream big. 
that changes your perspective, I can imagine. Very much so. But then, you know, you come back and I mean, my, my typical travel route for many years was I would fly on a Monday, I would fly to New York and then I would over a week would fly west. So I would go uh, New York, Boston, Chicago, Denver, LA, San Francisco. I would ha finish meetings in San Francisco or Seattle on a Friday and then fly to, to uh, Tokyo over the weekend um, and spend three, four days in Japan and then come back to Zurich. Mm -hmm. So that trip, Tokyo to Zurich was always like, okay, you land and you think, okay, what happened? You land in Zurich and you drive into town and you feel like, was there a bomb scare or is there a national emergency? Because nobody's in the street. There are no people. Where are all the, these people? <laughs> yeah, where, 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 where do people go? Yeah. But then you come back and I, I live in, in, in the Engadin, in La Punt, a town of 600 people. So typically my drive would then go not just into Zurich, but then I would, would land in the morning and go, go skiing. And then you have that quiet and the ability to focus. And then I go, well, there's this world out there and all these huge markets and millions and millions of potential on users. We currently have about 10, 12 million people in ONS um, around the world. But then you have the quiet and the focus to actually then build the product. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a really good balance to not always be so, so exposed and to all the hype and everything. In the U.S., everything has to happen next day. You know, you, 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 you hire someone or you want to hire someone and they're like, oh, you know, I'm, I don't think it's going to work out. I can only start two weeks from now. And we're used to waiting six months for someone. Sure. So, you know, uh, you know, I think there, there, there are good things in, in, in the different cultures. We try to, to combine the best uh, with our Swiss, Swiss roots. It also sounds like you as a person really lift that, you know, like half a month you're traveling, see the global markets, if possible now, because of Corona, a bit more difficult. And the other half, you focus with the quiet time to think, to focus and to really work and deliver. Yeah, I mean, I could never live in New York. I could never live in Tokyo. Um, it's very inspiring, but after a week, I go absolutely crazy and I have to go back and I have to reconnect and, uh, and, and be in my space. And, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, the good thing is you now, obviously physical travel, but also now all these contacts that we've built up, they're very deep relationships. And some people actually appreciate that we made all these efforts and we, we did travel. So now, you know, for example, when the pandemic happened, um, and when the U.S. shut down, I remember it was a Sunday when it was, you know, when it was announced that they would shut down. I got um, a lot of calls from people in the, in the U.S., very important retailers, uh, uh, CEOs of large companies that called me um, and made the effort. Um, I got a lot more calls actually than from, from Swiss partners or even European partners. Um, so, yeah, it's, you, you can live in both worlds. Um, just have to try it try not to get too crazy. You mentioned the potential. You saw many swooshes on the sneakers of people. Let's talk about competitors for a second. They're Nike, Asics, Adidas. How do you handle them? How do you deal with them? Is there even any competition from your perspective? So in the beginning, we basically, you know, we could just grow and we could, whether the market grew or we took market share from someone else. I mean, it was, it was so minimal that they definitely didn't feel it. Um, and we also, we never really looked left or right. We just did our thing. Um, then maybe four years ago in Europe and, and now definitely in the U.S., 
the the picture is changing. And, and uh, for example, in the in Germany, we now overtook Adidas in their whole market, um, which you know probably doesn't uh, uh, yeah make people in Herzog and Aurach very happy. Um, I imagine, and, and you know, obviously we we are we are uh, in contact loosely in contact. Um, I think in 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 the U.S. Uh, definitely, the people in Beaverton have realized that 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 we're around, um, and that we're actually uh, we're actually gaining market share very rapidly. We're, we're now the number four or five brand in in the U.S. Um, uh, and growing at a very high rates, triple digit growth. Um, so yeah, it, it is becoming a little bit more competitive. Having said that, it's it's very friendly, um, and and the people in the industry get along extremely well. We're all in it in it because we love sports. We we love to do sports together, um, and and it's 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 definitely not cutthroat. It's not it's not banking. So you could also go for a run together. We and we do, yeah, nice. and uh, we can have a beer together, and we can have a good laugh, and uh, and and learn. And look uh, as. As a smaller brand, um, uh, an owner-led uh, brand, we can we can be courageous. We can be in, be innovative, innovative. We can take risks, and sometimes we do stuff like we just launched a, a sustainable product that is only available by subscription. Where actually, people from all the big brands reached out to us and said, "Hey, we're so glad you guys did this because we had the same idea, but we couldn't push it through the organization." People, you know. Just too much red tape, too much. This is how we do things. We cannot disrupt ourselves. Um, uh, on as a smaller brand, we can we can still do that. Awesome. Let's also talk about two uh, supporters that you know accompany you along the way. One is the very international investor base that you chose early on. So, in what way has also the internationalization that part your investor base helped you to build a successful company? Look, when you, when you build and especially when you scale a company, you need capital. Um, I remember one notable meeting when we, um, tried to get a loan from a bank. I'm not saying which one. Um, um, we had a meeting and, you know, the three of us we were not, we were not youngsters. We were not just coming straight out of university. We had a pretty deep educational background. We had worked at McKinsey. We had had um, executive roles, but this um, this this person that you know wanted to give us the loan or didn't want to give us the loan basically said, "Don't you guys have like a rich uncle that could guarantee for the loan?" Like literally, and I mean the guy was just a stupid asshole, right? And uh, Actually, uh, we then later, uh, you know, the, we actually have a very good relationship with, with that bank. But um, actually, the CEO later apologized for, for that moment. But this is something that maybe other other entrepreneurs will will will, will see. So, so yeah, yeah, you know, going that route is very very difficult. At the same time, there's a lot of money in the world, and a lot of that money is in Switzerland. So, I mean, we'd always joke in the beginning, there's a lot more money in Switzerland than ideas. Maybe different in Berlin, you know, you have a lot of ideas or you had, um, and, and, and not so much money. But if you have a good idea, it's easy to find money. And especially now that everybody wants to be involved with startup and it's a sexy thing. Um, uh, you know, people are willing to, to give you money and give you money at good terms. So we started and, um, we, we actually just, I asked uh, two friends of mine that uh, I had studied with that were in banking how we should approach fundraising. And both of them said, Hey, if you're gonna, if you're willing to quit your job, 
we're going to invest with you. So our fundraising was literally one lunch and we were able to start. And I'm eternally grateful for these, for these two people that, 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 that they were so forthcoming. And out of this group, more friends of friends joined. Um, and then as it happened, some of these friends had a little bit deeper pockets, um, and, and new people. And, but it was all very Swiss based. Um, and, and we also realized at some point that the Swiss mentality was starting to hold us back. Um, we had one family office that was, was uncomfortable in a role, even though they only had 20% that they were supposed to be the lead investor and they would only normally do public investments. And, and it came to a, to a point where we, we agreed that it would be better to go separate ways because they were held, holding us back. And, and, uh, and, and we, that's when we tapped into the um, Anglo-Saxon um, uh, world of finances. And one thing that we discovered is valuations are twice what they are in Switzerland, which is great, you know, because you, sure. you get diluted, um, uh, you get less and uh, ticket sizes are much bigger. And then... Um, um, as we grew in the U.S., all of a sudden, and Chinese investors got more interested. And um, through the, all of this, we were able to retain control, and that's very, very important. So we're still we're still controlling our own destiny. Nobody has any veto powers or you know stupid things. We cannot be kicked out. We have the majority on the board, um, um, and that's a, a very healthy balance. So. Um, even though we, we, we did scale very fast and we, we did, I mean, it was reasonable what we invested. Um, but uh, we never, we never compromised on our ability to control the business. Nice. I think that's a crucial part of, you know, also driving the company forward in the future. And you did so. Uh, you got a lot of media attention with another supporter, Roger Federer, that you won over uh, as investor and also as business partner. So first of all, how were you able to to win him over, and why is it a good good fit to on? Yeah, so this is a little bit of Swiss story. Uh, I don't think it would have happened if he had not been a Swiss athlete. But basically, when 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 Roger um, left Nike, um, he needed shoes, and uh, he started buying shoes, and he started finally to buy what he really liked. And and luckily, on was one of the brands that uh, he liked. Mirka, um, uh, um, his wife. Um, was already wearing ons um, early on and, and um, probably told him, hey, these are super comfortable. So anyway, you know, pictures started pick, uh, uh, popping up on, on social media and, and uh, in, in the press of, on, uh, of, of Roger wearing ons. And we were, of course, super honored. And I mean, he's, uh, you know, he's, he's uh, one of the, the, the greatest sports people alive. Uh, or, or, or that ever lived. And, you know, we, we knew somebody and knew someone and knew him. And we we're like, hey, can, can't you tell Roger that he doesn't have to buy the stuff? I mean, <laughs> we'd be happy to send him a pair every now and then. And that's how it started. And um, at some point, uh, we got a call and it was like, hey, you know, Roger's going to land um, coming, I think, from Cincinnati. Um, and on the way back from the airport, he would just like to meet you guys. You've been so friendly and sending him shoes. He has 10 minutes. Um, so he came and we spent about two hours uh, talking and we really connect. Nice. And, and yeah, and, and then uh, a little while later, um, he called and said, hey, you guys want to go for dinner? And we went for dinner. And it just it basically a friendship um, developed. And at some point, the idea came up, hey, why don't we work together? Um, but at the same time, I mean, we were a lot smaller. Uh, this is only 
two and a half years ago, but we were a lot smaller. Um, and, and there was no way we could ever afford a sponsorship. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the idea was, hey, like, if we can't afford to pay Roger, why don't we have Roger pay us? <laughs> now, joking aside, basically, the idea was um, consumers today, they see through sponsorships. So basically, you know, you have famous person A, um, brand uh, B, and, you know, they, they pay them a lot of money. Like, Rihanna gets a lot of st- money from whomever, and... Uh, and she, you know, goes on Instagram and says, like, this is the coolest stuff ever. Um, it's very shallow. Uh, now, Roger, with everything that he has achieved, he doesn't have to work anymore. And he can choose what he wants to do. Um, and, of course, he's also asked himself, himself, what if I ever retire? You know, so 20 years from now, he's no longer playing Wimbledon. What will he do? Um, and, and he's very interested in, in being an entrepreneur. And, and we realized in, in our conversations there is an opportunity that his journey and your journey could come together um, and we could have a lot of fun and, and, and actually yeah, hopefully um, touch a lot of people in, in very positive ways. And, and that's how this, this then came about and, and, and the start of the partnership and the reaction to the first product that we jointly developed are mind-blowing. It, it's much, much bigger than both him and us had ever expected. Um, so yeah, we're off to we're off to a good start. And but I must also say, he's very impressive. How deeply he's involved, how uh, smart he is, how 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 uh, he has a very clear vision of what he wants to do, not just on the tennis court, but also in business. And he's investing a lot more time um, than we ever hoped. And I mean, he's 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 at the lab uh, all the time. And uh, and uh, uh, yeah. There's a lot of really cool stuff coming going so forward. We're curious to see what's coming out of the lab pretty soon then. <laughs> Let's also quickly talk about where you currently stand with Vaughn. You are available in more than 8,000 running stores in over 50 countries. And as you already said, have 10 to 12 million people wearing on shoes on the planet. I think that's a huge success. So we ask ourselves, what's next for you? Do you plan to do an IPO one day? Do you focus on, of course, new product developments? But what's next for on? We're always focused on what happens when a person, a consumer, a runner interacts with on, whether it's through a product or through uh, an engagement that we have. Um, that's really what we care about. And, and in the end, uh, when we started, we had the vision of, of, of reaching, basically giving everybody a better uh, feeling when they're moving. So, you know, that's where Put the Fun into the Run came about because for most people, if you t- tell them, hey, you know, running or exercising, they wouldn't say it's fun. It's hard work and you're, you're happy when you're done with it, but you're not enjoying the actual act. And we wanted to change that. And with ONS technology, first in footwear, but now also across apparel, we're making things a little bit effortless. You know, we're making it lighter, more agile, softer. Um, and if you can get more people to move, um, I think we're making... More people happy and maybe even the world just a tiny little bit a better place. So that's what we're what we're striving for. Everything, the revenues, the profits, the the business structure, the size of the office or not the office or whatever it is that these are just tools, and they will come and go. Um, these are never goals. These are never aims. And and you know we feel if if you start aiming for um, you know, I want the big office or I want uh, this or that, or that, 
it's the wrong, it's the wrong, wrong motivation, wrong motivation. So whatever it takes to, to fulfill that goal that over time, um, most people, um, will be wearing an on product and will be enjoying it. Um, uh, we'll, we'll take whatever, whatever it takes to get there. Awesome. You have so many cool products, uh, different shoes. What's your favorite pair of shoe? I really like the hiking boots. They're, uh, they're, they're, they're light. They're, they, they, they don't make me tired when I walk down, down the mountain. And as I said, I, I live in La Punte, so I have a lot of opportunity to wear them yes. in all sorts of weather and conditions. So before we conclude the episode, I have two more questions for you. Let's talk about your favorite resources and gadgets. Do you have any books or blogs, podcasts, or also tools that you use yourself on a regular basis that you can recommend to our listeners? How I Built This is a podcast that I enjoy. Um, hopefully I will be on it uh, one day. Um, I think podcasts are, are, are great if you're, if you're traveling in the car or you, you, you're flying. I, I don't get around to listening to them too, too much. Um, also, I'd recommend not to read too many business books um, because uh, actually I do get sent business books every now and then. And some of them that I read and all the examples that are in there, these companies are all bankrupt today or not, not the, the great story anymore. So try to write your own story. Awesome. I think that's a great recommendation. And we also planned some rapid fire questions for you. I either give you a short question or a selection of two to three options where you have to make one choice. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. Europe, China, or the United States? The United States, because people are just extremely friendly. They're very human. And we're not talking about politics or the legal system, but um, they're also very resilient and they will always find a way to, to get, get back up uh, without complaining. Right. Wealth or happiness? Happiness. Easy choice for you? For sure. What makes you smile? My son, when, uh, when he smiles at me, um, my wife um, and, and nature being out in the mountains or being on the ocean and just then, you know, just appreciating a moment. Nice. Where do you go to think? I move. I, uh, I do sports. Uh, best time for me to think is on the bike. Uh, when I really have a difficult business problem to solve, I usually jump on the bike and I ride for hours, sometimes over several days. Um, and I usually come back with a, with a good idea. And it is not, not necessarily alone, but, um, we always joke cycling is the new golf or running. Uh, it works as well. Um, and you know, to, you go in a, in a small group and we actually have a lot of running and, and, and biking and even ski touring meetings add on. And the last selection for you today, Zurich or La Punt? La Punt. Why? Look, if I had a choice to make, if I would just spend the rest of my life in the Engadin or in any city in the world, uh, I wouldn't have to think more than a second. It's definitely uh, the Engadin. Awesome. Casper, thank you so much for sharing your story today. It's been an impressive journey that you shared with us. And we wish you and on all the best for the future. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into today's episode. Stay connected with the Swisspreneur community through our LinkedIn and Instagram profiles. Make sure to subscribe to our show on whatever podcast platform you're using. See you next week for a brand new episode of The Swisspreneur Show.